Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. How many excited to be here today? I'm so glad you made it uh, here this uh, morning. We're entering in a new uh, new sermon series. Uh, we're calling it Cross and Culture or Jesus and Culture. And so today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to take about two hours of your time and talk about Jesus and spirituality. Uh, over the next probably seven weeks, uh, the teaching team and I, we're going to be really exploring a lot of different big cultural issues. So we're going to be talking about Jesus and the rela- relationship with Jesus and freedom and truth. And um, we'll also talk about beauty and righteousness and justice and grace and all those different, really big, big themes. And so, but today I'm going to begin with Jesus and spirituality. Uh, before I do that, you guys know the drill, turn to your neighbor and say, go. No. No, 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 no. I'm trying to think of a team here. Go, go Bengals. Come on. Go Bengals. Yes. Packer fans, we love you. Now you know how I felt last week. All right. So the question is, uh, as we get started, what is the mood of the psalm? This is what I teach my kids. I have seven children. And uh, I teach not the four younger ones, but the uh, three older ones. I'm teaching them how to read uh, the book of Psalms. And so one of the things I teach them is if if you want to figure out uh, the nature, the composition of the psalm, a good place to start is figuring out the mood of the psalm. So the question you have to ask, is it hopeful? Is it confident? Uh, is it troubled? Is there, is there complaint? Is it a, a lament? I have to define what a lament is. Like Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? Which is the most frequent question of lament. And so I kind of walk them through kind of this labyrinth of emotions and in different uh, moods. I also ask them, is there a Thanksgiving? I, um, I ask them, is it imprecatory and surly? And they always ask, what is imprecatory psalm? It's cursing psalms. It's when the psalmist like curses the enemies of God, much like the Packer fans curses that team that we will never mention again. So here's the thing. The Psalms were redacted in such a way as to highlight the full range of human emotion. I've, I've taught about this a lot in all of its complexity. So understanding the mood of a Psalm is a key to understanding the Psalm itself. Okay. So one of the things, and this is a little bit of a tangent, and I think I need to mention it. My wife uh, so eloquently said before, the Psalms teaches us, everyone say the Psalms, the Psalms teaches us that we can be safe with our emotional life with God, that you can bring all of you to God in prayer, all your tensions, all your idiosyncrasies, all your sins, all your frustrations, all your cursing, you can bring to God, and it's a safe place. So what do we call this? We call this a theodrama. Everyone say theodrama. I'm going to talk about ego drama here pretty soon, but this is the theodrama. What is that, Chris? Well, if you know anything about life, life, we'll call it the vicissitudes of life. Life is shaped around vicissitudes or changing things, right? How many of you, if you could, you would ask the Holy Spirit today to totally take your emotions and just make them perfect? How many would say that? Five of you. Okay, how many of you have emotions here this morning? 
okay? You're not an automaton, right? You're not a robot. We all have emotions. We all have moods. We all have feelings. And how many of you know there are certain days where trying to manage your emotions is like managing a herd of cats? I'm 45. I know I look like 50, but the older I get, here's the thing, the better that I've gotten when it comes to taking captive my thoughts and really following the, the, the lead of the Holy Spirit. But there are days where my feelings and my emotions are all over the place, right? There, there are mornings where uh, I'll wake up and I, I'm in the presence of, of the Holy Spirit and he's talking to me. Then I go home with my seven kids, they're screaming. And then I find myself shouting, you know, and screaming. And then um, some of you are judging me right now. Um, and then I go back and I research and I study. I love to study. I love to read. And uh, I find myself again in the presence of God. Then I come back to work. And maybe some of you experience this. And you kind of get back into like just stuff. Like life is messy. Can I get an amen? Life is messy, right? So how do we, how do we handle the changing of our, of our moods and even the, the vicissitudes of life and the changing of our circumstances? Well, you have to live into the uh, theodrama. How do you do that? And what do you even mean, Chris? Well, the theodrama is just really simple. It, it's just an assumption, or you could say even an assertion, that our feelings come and go. That we are, by definition, human. We are, in terms of our uh, emotions and moods, are changeable. Our moods and feelings change. But as my, my wife mentioned, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's immutable. That's a fancy word that just simply means he doesn't change. So his love for you is constant, even when yours isn't. His delight and joy and passion and power is constant every single day. And so when you live from that theodrama and you bring the changeability of your emotions and your feels to him and the circumstances of your life, which is shaped sometimes by trouble and suffering and exhaustion, right? If you're a parent, can I get an amen? And you bring that to God, that is where you find strength. That is when you can be all that God has called you to be. But that's just a different tangent. So the question is, what's the mood of Psalm 84? Any takers? What's the mood of Psalm 84? Longing. What else? Desperation. Go ahead and talk to me. I like it when you talk to me. Desire. Longing. Desperation. Desire. Lament. Yeah, that's actually a good one. That's love. All of those is really good. Check this out. Verse one says, uh, how lovely is your dwelling place. My soul longs as even faints for the courts of the Lord. Longing, right? That's longing. How many of you have come this morning fainting for a worship experience? My, my soul longs, right? So there's a sense of desperation. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. This is delight. Verse four says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. That's nostalgia. That's what I would call nostalgia. Nostalgia. Verse five, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, right? I would call that love. So we have desire. We have love. We have, we have delight. We have nostalgia. We have desperation. We could even say restlessness. So what is all of this? What is all this love? Uh, what is all this restlessness? What is all this longing desire for the courts of the Lord about? This is biblical spirituality. You were designed by God, in other words, to long and desire for him. It's funny, I didn't mean to uh, mention this this morning, but I feel like I have to. Many times when it comes to Christianity, people just assume that we have to rep repress 
or suppress our emotions and our feels. The opposite is true. We just need to take our emotions and direct them in an appropriate way. Like some of you are like, you're, you're, you're asked a question while you're reading your Bible and you're like, because I have to. Right? Is this weird? Like, why are you coming to church? Well, because I'm supposed to. So the pastor told me. I don't know why I'm talking like this, right? It's, it's funny how we think that Christianity is about repressing your emotions and your feelings. No, Christ, biblical Christianity is, or biblical spirituality is all about longing, desire, restlessness for the courts of the Lord. Right? It feels quixotic, in other words, not on the foolish end, but it feels quixotic. For example, when I was a kid, I don't know if people do this anymore, kids do this anymore. My friends wrote the name of their crush on their Jordans, the shoelaces, right? Do people do that anymore, young people? No, that's what us old people did, right? Us old timers did. I never did, I was logical, I was rational, I was a redhead, so no one really liked me. But anyways, <laughs> kidding. I did it maybe once or twice or a couple times, but Again, this is kind of this quick, quixotic feel that you have in Psalm 84 is this kind of, it connects with um, a kid that just is crushing on someone. Again, the longing for the courts of God is the hallmark of Christian spirituality. Writing in the tradition of Christian spirituality, St. John of the Cross wrote, one dark night fired by love's urgent longing. The great African theologian who we all know, St. Augustine wrote, you have made us for yourself you have, O oh Lord, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So longing, desire, the sense of restlessness, this nostalgia, this love, it is a good thing if it's directed correctly. Can I get any man, church? So what is spirituality? The question is, do I have it? Some of you are like, I'm a neo-stoic guy. I'm an introvert. I don't have a lot of emotions. That is wrong, wrong, wrong. You have emotions. So the, the question is, do I have or do we all have spirituality? And the answer is, yes, you do. Some of you are sweating right now. We all have spirituality. So what is it, Chris? Well, spirituality is a relatively new word in the West, uh, unless you're French, which has a longer, more robust tradition uh, regarding spirituality. But one author defines spirituality in this way. We are not easygoing creatures, he says who occasionally get restless, or serene persons who once in a while become obsessed with desire. The reverse is true. We are driven people. Everyone say driven people. We are forever and congenitally obsessed with longing. In fact, desire is the straw that stirs the drink of our lives. Right? How many of you have kids? I have kids, and desire draw, is the thing that draws, the, you know, is the whatever, the straw that, that stirs the drink. Whatever, whatever. I was up all, all last night. I had two twins smacking me in the face, so I'm not quite sure where I am at today. But our kids are driven by this obsession over Paw Patrol. And I don't know if, you've, if you're a parent, you probably know this chicken wing dance. If I, if I hear chicken wing dance one more time, just end me, okay? They're driven by, they're driven by toast. Toast, right? And bars and Presley, uh, one of my twin boys, he loves Target. He longs for Target. Every time I go by Target, he's like, Target, Target. He longs. And then it turns to rage, like his mama. Urgh! 
So desire is the straw that stirs the drink in our lives. Right? So what is spirituality? Spirituality is God-given, I'll say this. It's what we do with our longing. It's what we do with our desire. It's what we do with our nostalgia. It's what we, what we do with the craving for that which is beyond ourselves. It's what we do with the longing that is baked into our mind and our heart for the transcendent. I, I, I would even like to say that, that spirituality is our desire to be blessed. It's our desire to be seen. All of you in this room wants to be seen. It's our desire to have intimacy with God. It's our desire to be chosen. Come on, somebody. It's our desire to be on the, and I'm going to talk about this in a little bit. It's our desire to be on the inside as opposed to being on the outside. That's what shapes every spiritual person. In fact, uh, when it comes to being seen, my daughter, Wavy, everyone say Wavy. She's two years old and she looks at me often and my wife and she'll just say, watch me daddy, right? It's the cutest thing. She'll do it like 80 times a day. And at the end of the day, you're like, oh my God, please, right? <laughs> I'm so exhausted. But this is, she just wants to be seen. So she'll just say, watch me daddy. And then she'll look at me and then she'll just do this. <laughs> Blown away. <laughs> Woo! She's precocious. And she keeps on doing it. What, what makes her do that? It's the desire, right? It's that desire that drives her. It's, it's her desire to be seen, to be blessed, to be known. Spirituality is, again, to be chosen. You want to be on the inside as opposed to the outside. Spirituality is to have wonder, delight, joy. And let me just say this really quick. Spirituality is a non-negotiable of our lives. In other words, everyone, everyone say everyone. Everyone is spiritual. Non-spiritual, uh, no, I'll say it this way. The opposite of spiritual is not non-spiritual. And what, however you would conceptualize non-spiritual people, I don't know, maybe a raging materialist has some dude that has money, goes to Vegas, does cocaine, gets some hookers or whatever. I'm just going with it, okay? You're like, this, you can say that in church. Just be, okay, just stop, okay? We usually think non-spiritual people kind of like that, right? All the raging materialists out there. No, the opposite of spiritual is you're dead. You're gone. Bye-bye, right? You're no longer a part of this world. You are, again, God has designed you in such a way um, that you cannot get rid of the spiritual dynamism of your life. Well, how, how do you, how, Chris, how do you know that we're spiritual? Well, everyone hates elevator music. Why? Because it's lifeless. <laughs> it's dead, right? It's a cheap imitation of, I don't know, Coldplay or Beyonce or like, I, I know that song, but there's no life to it, right? To be spiritual is to have life and energy and passion and desire. Again, it's a desire to be, is to, to be seen and to be blessed. 
Well, let me just go on a little cultural rant and then I'm gonna get into some theology and then we're gonna end this uh, message in two hours, okay? But the problem with uh, spiritualities today in our pluralistic world uh, is due to all these ego dramas. And by ego drama, this simply means the self has full possession or full authority over one spirituality. And so this essentially leads to throwing things together. So in this kind of new spirituality where the self has ultimate authority over one spirituality, uh, you can throw things together like a dream catcher and a Celtic cross, and you can sprinkle a little Wiccan ritual. Uh, you can add some tarot cards and some cats because the cats are cultish, you know. You could add um, a little evangelical Jesus with it, and that is the new spirituality of today. Some scholars are calling it remixed uh, spirituality. Some are calling it whatever. Um, but let me just say this really quick. Our nation is not getting less religious. We're actually getting more religious. We're just calling it spirituality. We're getting more spiritual, right? But the problem, of course, with this kind of uh, pick and choose your spirituality is that it doesn't work. It seeks to make what is radically dissimilar, similar. I just read recently that uh, someone just uh, confessed on some post that they are a Presbyterian and a Buddhist. And that just, again, it just, and I'm not trying to make fun of this person at all. It just, it just goes back to what I am saying. The self has the ultimate authority to curate their own spiritual or their spirituality. And so you have people that are taking radically dissimilar things and try to uh, mix and match them. It's like um, forcing mismatched socks to match, right? And that will never happen. And that's why we need to get a lot of socks. Can I get an amen? And can I just ask you, why, are, why do our socks always go missing? Is that just a me problem or is that, you, it's just like the one sock that you want, you can't find its twin? Okay, anyways. But here's the thing. The bigger issue is that one day, and hear me, the bigger issue is that one day all of us will realize that the longing and desire that we've relocated in other things is really your need to worship. You have a need to worship. And then once you begin to realize that, honestly, at the bottom of who you are, you want to worship, you will quickly realize that you're not big enough to worship. You're not large enough to worship. Your tiny little spirituality that's a mismatch of different trinkets and different religious experiences is, is not large enough, cannot satisfy the longing of your heart. And then as you begin to realize that, you'll begin to realize that desire, everyone say desire, desire is infinite. And only something, and this is not logic chopping here, but this is so part of the warp and woof of our daily life. Man, only something infinite can fill the longing desire of our soul, right? Like this is the, this is the problem. I've talked to so many people. I've, I've talked to people that have won championships. I've talked to people that have made tons of money and they're still profoundly empty. Why is that? Well, it's because their desire is infinite, until they can drink up all of the universe and go to every restaurant in this planet, 15 million restaurants over and over and over, until they achieve every championship in every sport and have every sexual partner and have everything that this universe could fill them, then they could be somewhat satisfied. And yet they want to be satisfied. Desire is infinite and only can be satisfied with someone who is infinite. Uh, one sociologist said this, he's, he's not a theist at all, but I'm going to riff off him. 
He said this, God revealed in Jesus, I'm adding this, uh, not culture or your preference is the only appropriate object of unconditional reverence, wonder, and surrender. So they'll, they'll, they'll come to a point in your life when you'll, you'll recognize that you need to worship. It's gonna, it, it, it happens to everybody. The Holy Spirit will speak to you and draw you into that conclusion. There's going to come a point in your life when you realize that you're not big enough to worship. And then as you begin to realize that, the corollary of all that is just a basic realization that you need to surrender. Worship, I'm not big enough. I need to surrender to something bigger than myself. I know we're Americans here. Right, Vox Populi, Vox Day, voice of the people is the voice of God. We think we're in charge, right? We, we do our thing, we're Americans. And so when we talk about surrender, it's hard for us. That's not even part of our lexicon. Surrender? I'm not gonna surrender. But as followers of Jesus, when we begin to realize that everything is, you can trace everything back to worship, then you begin to realize that surrender is the only way into a Jesus-shaped spirituality. Our second problem, and then I'm going to get into some theology here really quick. Our second problem is this idea that you can know God for yourself, but you don't need the church spirituality. It's been happening for 30 or 40 years. This is not new. We preach about this all the time. So I get it. So I'm not trying to be cliche here today, but I felt that I needed to share this last Sunday. Uh, I, I read a post this week and it goes like this. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Please know God for yourself. But the truth is the church really isn't for everyone, especially because of how they treat people. So this person ends, just commit or just connect with God for yourself. So yeah, I, I would say yes and no to this. Has the church treated people wrongly? You shake your, yeah. Uh, should we repent? No? We should repent. This is your time to talk back to me. Make sure I'm pastor in the right church. Should we walk in humility? Should there be accountability? Absolutely. Should there be transparency? Yes. So I agree with her. Yes, at times the church has treated people wrongly. My problem with this is the obvious. God, God is not just a being who only cares for one person. Right? Many of us, when in this new spirituality, you can connect with God, but you don't need other people, assumes this claim on God as some exclusive deity that someone can manipulate. And that's what drives really the subconscious of this new spiritual spirituality. But we know that God is more than just caring about us, Right? God cares about the guy down the road. God cares about your neighbor. God cares about, yes, your kids. God cares about the guy in the grocery store. God cares about those people in politics that you don't like. God cares for people in Idaho. God cares for people in California. God cares for people in Florida, right? God cares for people in Texas. God cares about people in Portland, sort of, okay? <laughs> God's so much bigger than we, ah, we just domesticate God. We just reduce him to, to our own image. But back to Psalm 84. Psalm 84 and the longing to be in the courts of, of, of God presupposes a big obstacle. Are, are you still tracking with me? Can you give me three minutes to do some theology? Five minutes? Okay, we'll stay with three minutes, all right? Whoa. Uh, 
The longing to be in the courts of God presupposes this big obstacle. The big obstacle, as you read Psalm 84 and you can feel it, it's quixotic. But the obstacle is that they're not in the courts of God. What's driving them? They want to dwell in God's courts. When you read in verse 10, it's one day is better than, than a thousand. I, I, I read that as um, they wish it was more than one day. There's a longing to dwell in the courts of God, to be in the very presence of the divine. So what do we do with this obstacle? Well, in the next few minutes, I'm gonna talk about my best friend. I'm gonna talk a little Augustinian anthropology. I'm gonna mix it with Paul. It's gonna only take two minutes, okay? And then I'm gonna talk about what it means to be on the inside. Are you with me? So what's this big obstacle that's shaping Psalm 84? Well, in Genesis, you find the central tragedy of the book is found in its trajectory. It begins with the fullness of life. Could you imagine this? Humans walking with God in the garden. I, I can't even imagine. We find in Genesis chapter two, God gives the first, the first image bearers this command, eat of every tree. It literally reads in the Hebrew, eat, eat. So it implies this quantitative reality in the garden. So I just like to think that there's fullness of life, that the first humans are walking with God in the garden and there are peaches for everywhere, right? How many love peaches? Not nectarines that break your teeth, but a nice, ripe, fuzzy peach that you can eat and it drips all over your body and you don't even care. Imagine that. You have life. Everyone say life. You have flourishing. You didn't have to say that, but that's all right. Walking with God in the garden. What, what are they? They are in on the inside. Okay? Not the outside. But then Genesis ends with Joseph in a coffin. And a, and a prophetic song that kind of sounds like a dirge. You see, the problem driving the tragedy of Genesis is human rebellion and wickedness. We know this. Adam and Eve chose to define reality on their own terms. And God had to expel them from the garden. As excommunicated priests, they not only lose the divine presence, they also lose their purpose. When you lose the presence of God, you lose as a human your purpose. We were designed by God to be kings and priests, to partner with him to bring this unfinished project we call the garden into flourishing throughout God's creation. God wants us to partner with him in his good purposes over creation. All of that was lost. So Adam and Eve go from intimacy with God to alienation. And this is where we come to my best friend. When I was about 10, one of my best friends, he was 12 at the time, failed to invite me to his birthday party. But he invited all my other friends. And so, yeah, no self-pity, okay? All right. I'm, not, I'm totally not psychologically scarred, okay? I don't think about it every day. Um, anyways... I remember sitting in my house and uh, just thinking about all the fun that they were having. Like playing, back then it was my, I knew they were gonna play Mike Tyson's Punch Out. I knew they were gonna go in the front yard and play ball. I knew they were gonna have pizza, which was my favorite food, right? And I just, I could not get rid of this inescapable feeling that I was now on the outside. So imagine Adam and Eve, after they, they make a decision to define reality on their own terms. And by reality, we mean everything from morality to uh, what's just, what's good, what's beautiful, what's true, all of that. They choose autonomy over uh, dependence and surrender to God. Imagine being expelled now from the garden 
and then looking back into the garden, longing to be with the divine presence. I'm convinced, right? And this is, this is just my, my imagination at work, that they sat outside the garden for a long time. I'm convinced they could hear the, the cool sound or whatever, the, the walking of Yahweh in the garden. Right? I'm sure they could see the peach trees. Right? Kind of, have you ever taken your kids and your kids, you, you want to take them to the, the zoo, but you're too tired to take them in the zoo, so you take them around and you see the giraffe? <laughs> right? And, and, you're, and you just make a, you just, you just go for it. Look at the giraffe. It's George, the giraffe, right? And the kids are so excited, but that's all they get, right? Imagine that th that's how Adam and Eve felt, right? They're outside the garden looking in. They have, they have no purpose. They have no divine presence. They're on the outside like me and my birthday. So how does this go? How does this lead to um, Augustine? Well, Augustine's anthropology and his understanding of the human condition, are you, are you guys so good? It's framed around this Latin phrase, fallo ergo sum, which means I am wrong, therefore I am. So Augustine believed that we are wrong all the way through. However, Paul makes the case in Ephesians 2 that we're not just wrong all the way through, we are dead all the way through. You were dead in your trespasses, right? You were dead in your trespasses, but God through his grace made you alive. I should get like a really good amen to that. Should I say that again? You were dead in your trespasses, but you were made alive by grace and the good purposes of God. So Paul is very pessimistic about human behavior. We are on the outside because of human rebellion. Everyone in this room, we all have participated in that original sin of defining reality on our own terms. God must, and I can't get into it, God must expel and send the people into exile. As I close this little like theology piece, separated from God, you see all of humanity, it's funny, moving away from Eden. They're moving what? Eastward. Cain built a city east of, east of Eden. Babel was built east of Noah's Ark. Lot chose two cities east of Abram's altar. Everything's built east of Eden. What does that mean? Eastward means away from the garden, away from the divine presence. It's an attempt to build civilization without God. In fact, Babel, I don't want to get into this, is all an attempt to use technology to short circuit God to get into his presence. So we have, as we see in the book of Genesis, an avalanche of death and destruction eastward, east of the garden. But God's answer to the problem of exile and to the issue of Psalm 84 and the obstacle of being on the outside, and this is really simple, is a tabernacle. You see, and I've talked about this a lot, the tabernacle was a dwelling place where heaven and earth joined up together, right? Right? It's a microcosmos. What does that mean? It's a little cosmos that represents all of creation. It's where heaven and earth join. It's where God wants to meet with his people. Can I get an amen? But it also is an architectural embodiment of the garden. I'm not going to get into the details of that. You're just going to have to take me for my word, okay? And if you have a problem with me, email me at joelking at hotmail.com. But here's the thing, the drama of the Bible 
is that God opens up a way, the entire Bible, is that God opens up a way for, for the people to gain access to his presence again, and he does it through the tabernacle. You see, God wants to meet with his people. However, the tabernacle, as I kind of close this theology piece, uh, is, is an interim structure. It's not designed uh, to be there forever. It's temporary. And this is where we come now to Jesus in John chapter 1. John tells us that Jesus, who is the word, the logos, was made flesh. Everyone say flesh. And he dwelt among us. We all know this, right? What does dwell mean? To dwell among us means he tabernacled among us. I could preach this for a thousand years, but I'm not going to, okay? John is simply saying that Jesus is the walking, talking, breathing, healing, life-giving tabernacle, and that every human longing now is summed up in Jesus, and that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 84. Come on, somebody. And all the desire, and all the longing, and all the nostalgia, and all the love, and everything, all the things that you desire that makes up spirituality is summed up now in Jesus, who's the one who gives life as a tabernacle garden figure. It's powerful. We come to John chapter 19 as we read, Jesus is on the cross and the euphemism as we read it in our English translation is that Jesus bowed his head and what happened? He gave up his spirit. It's a bad translation. The translation of the Greek is that Jesus bowed his head and he gave up the spirit. As we know, I've talked about this long, Jesus' ultimate goal of going to the cross was to baptize us with the Spirit. So think about a Berkey water filter. They're designed to take the pollutants, the toxins of the water, right? And then release life, hopefully. Good water. This is what Jesus does on the cross. He takes our shame. He takes our past. He takes our rebellion, our wickedness, our sin. If you're a 49er fan, this is, I'm speaking to you today. You na nasty, right? Takes all the mess of our lives. I hope this is still good news for you. Takes all that sin and rebellion and sickness and all the tension and all the stress and everything that we experience in life. He takes it, he holds on to it like a Berkey water filter and he releases what? life and blessing. In other words, he releases his spirit, who in the words of one scholar is God's empowering presence. So this is why we come full circle. This is why in John 1, 12, John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That means that those who believe in Jesus are seen. They're known by the father. They're blessed. They have intimacy with God and access to his presence. This is all garden stuff. Every longing is summed up in Jesus. They didn't believe me over here. I'm going to go over here. Every longing and desire, every passion that you have, that you've placed in something else, is only fulfilled in Jesus who tabernacled among us took on skin, went to the cross and released his spirit into our lives. This is Jesus-shaped spirituality. So I'm done with the theology. I could have gone for a long time, but I'm gonna end now 
with two non-negotiables for Jesus-shaped spirituality. There's 50 that I could talk about today. But the first one is this. This is gonna be so profound. Some of you are gonna be like, oh my God, Chris, this is the greatest message I've ever heard, okay? Number one, this is a non-negotiable for Jesus-shaped spirituality. Start with Jesus. Not culture. Not your tiny little preference. Not what your prof said. And I love professors. I got a great one, right? But you just don't, you just not, you just don't take everything that people say. What, what your political party says. Please, I, I hope we're, we're, we've been rescued from that over the last two years. Can I get an amen to that? We don't start there. That doesn't mean we don't deal with any of that stuff. Yes, we're called to influence culture. Yes, we're called to influence politics. Yes, we're called to, to influence all of life. God just doesn't save part of our lives. He saves all of our lives, right? The whole of our life. But our starting point is with Jesus. So as I close here, it is not the case. If Jesus has taken on skin and flesh and DNA, and, and what it means to be human, he's taken that on, then it's not the case that Jesus is far from us. It's not the case that Jesus doesn't care about us. It's not the case that Jesus is uninvolved in the complexity of our lives. Like somehow he just doesn't care about the, our challenges. He doesn't care about our tensions. doesn't care about the stress. doesn't care about the things that we're going through, right? That's not the case. The incarnation, as John tells us in his gospel, says that basically Jesus enjoys being human. Jesus is not, let me say this really quick, a, a silhouetted Christ figure that floats around in deep space. Jesus is not some spiritualized version of some, I don't know, uh, spiritual force. No, in John's gospel, Jesus is flesh and he enjoys being human, enjoys being with his friends. He's with them in prayer. He's with them in study. And what you see in story after story after story is that Jesus engages with the people in a creative and interactive conversation with his followers. This interactive conversation with his followers is what shapes the longing of our heart. This is what we want to walk, to talk, to be spoken to, to be seen, to see beauty. Come on, somebody. This interactive conversation is what shapes Jesus-shaped spirituality. And what we find with Nicodemus and we find with Mary Magdalene, we find with Samaritan woman and we find with Peter and Thomas, these are all people with messed up lives or messy lives. They're all transformed by being with Jesus, engaging with him. So it's not the case that Jesus is far from us. Can I get an amen, church? It's not that it's the 21st century. We got skyscrapers now and we have technology, right? And we have all these things. We got medicine. So ah, Jesus isn't that relevant. That's not the case. And he's far from us. No, I think the case is most likely is that we are far from him. That we are less interested in what he has to say that in some ways that we care more about other things than we do about the kingdom of God. As one author wrote, he comments, that our age constitutes a virtual conspiracy against the interior life. I'll just add the Jesus-shaped spirituality. 
And as another author states, basically what he meant is to say that there are a number of historical circumstances flowing together to produce a climate, benign and um, demonic, which is difficult not just to think about God or pray, but simply to have any depth at all. That's the climate that we live in. In fact, one, one scholar says that one of the biggest issues that we have today is, is the issue of productivity or efficiency. We come home from work, we're exhausted, we have kids, we're tired, there's nothing wrong with it, that's great, God's in that, but if we're not careful, we don't have any energy for anything, much less God. Or for some of us, it's in the words of Neil Postman, he's a famous social critic in the 80s, uh, he coined the phrase amusing ourselves to death, which basically is, is the idea that we distract ourselves by superficiality as we touch our phones over 2,500 times a day. If you're under 40, I'm 45, but it doesn't apply to me, but if you're under 40, you're on your phone six hours a day. I'm on it eight hours a day. I get, yeah, I read my Bible most of the time. Anyways, but we're distracted by superficiality. We're, we're too distracted to have our attention, our focus on God to have any sort of Jesus-shaped, driven spirituality. Finally, one, one scholar, Henry Nouwen, he wrote, one of our biggest problems, spiritual problems today is we're greedy for experience. We want this, we want this, we want this, we want that, we want that, we want that, we want this, we want this, we want this, right? And because we're so distracted by all these different things and we're not able to will the one thing, like Paul said, the one thing I do, come on somebody, I forget those things which are behind and I strain forward for the upper call of God in Christ Jesus, we're unable to have any sort of spiritual life that is filled with God's power and life. So what's the answer? Let me, let me say this. I, I'll just sum up our spiritual problem today. I think it's that we're just way too preoccupied with other things. Not on Sunday, of course, because you, you have fully paid attention to my message today. None of you drifted off. You're not thinking about anything other than this message, right? But every, throughout the day or throughout the week, excuse me, if we're not careful, we can just become preoccupied. And I'm not even talking about like bad things. I'm talking about good things. And so we, we embrace secular assumptions about life. We marginalize God and we wonder why we have no power. We have no life. And our longing and our desires then become misshapen and, and they're twisted out of shape. And then we start placing them in other things, even good things. And those good things, which are secondary things, become first things. So what's the answer uh, to all of this? Well, it's, uh, it's pretty simple. John, I think, gives us tips on how to be with the logos, with the word. And I think the number one thing that we need to do every single day is just show up. Why show up? Well, because Jesus is already there. He's ready to speak, heal, teach. He's ready to forgive, help, challenge, sometimes rebuke. Can I get any man to that? He wants to love you. C.S. Lewis said this, if we put first things first, right? And second things second, we'll get both first and second things. But if we take second things or third things and we make them first things, we'll lose both first, second, third, fourth, and fifth things. So what should we do? Well, again, this is just really simple. And I'm challenging you because I feel like we're on the, we're on the precipice of a move of God in our city. God is doing something in our church, people. And it's not gonna happen if a people make a decision not to participate with the Holy Spirit. So if we're serious, how many serious people do we have here, right? We're serious about God and his kingdom. Then we have to make the kingdom of God and his righteousness 
our priority. I get it. We're tired. We're exhausted. I get it. There's no judgment here. There are days we fail. By the grace of God, if we can make Jesus our priority and just show up, God will take care of the rest. Finally, the last thing, and then I want to pray for all of us, is on the incarnation. I think this is big. I felt this strongly last Sunday. Uh, But Jesus, as we know, became flesh, right? And there are two words, I mentioned this before, in the Greek for flesh. One is soma, one is sarx. Soma is a beautiful body. Soma is defined by uh, the lack of decay. It's your Thor, it's your workout, it's like you're, you're a, whatever, a celebrity. Sarks has a negative term. As I mentioned before, it means a body subject to death and inertia, decay, sickness, all that kind of stuff. So John tells us that Jesus became Sarks for us. That's powerful, right? But here's the thing. Jesus also called his church his body, not Soma, he called his body, his church, Sarks in John chapter six. In other words, Sarks is a less than perfect community of people. I wish Jesus called the body of Christ Soma, but we all know the body of Christ is not Soma. It's less than perfect, it's Sarks. So what is Sarks? What does it look like? Well, it looks like people who sometimes don't see you and understand you. Sarks sometimes is a community that um, is offensive and, and this is not with this church, but maybe believes in strange conspiracy theories. Sarks is people with different political viewpoints. Sarks is sometimes filled with 49er fans. Sarks is filled with a community that struggles with vulnerability and forgiveness and transparency and love. To walk away from the church because of its hypocrisy, its arrogance, its superficiality is to walk away from Sarks, the body of Jesus. In other words, you cannot bypass a flawed family on earth and try to relate to an unflawed God in heaven. It's impossible. So a spirituality that is divorced from the body is not a Jesus-shaped spirituality. Now, I get it. A lot of people have been hurt in church. A lot of people have gone through very difficult things and there needs to be healing. Can I get an amen? Amen. And people, yes, need to be held accountable, right? Uh, We need to live lives of integrity. Pastors especially need to live lives of integrity, right? We hold each other accountable. We're called to build for the kingdom of God together, right? It's not just one person, not just several people. All of us together as a family are in this together. But if you, man, you spend a couple hours with me, you will realize that I'm a deeply flawed person. I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan, okay? I've flawed all the way through, right? We're all flawed here. So Sarks is the body of Christ, which is the essence being a part, let me say this as I close, of Sarks. It, it, It simply means that this is the essence of a Jesus-shaped spirituality. You cannot learn how to love by being with Soma. It's easy to love perfect people, and there's no such thing. It's harder to love imperfect people. And the way we learn to love is by being with unlovable people. And the way people learn to love you, because you're also unlovable, is by allowing yourself to be loved. you following me? So Jesus-shaped spirituality is all about learning to give your life away. 
It's all about learning to love imperfect people. It's, it's being a part of a messy family. Yes. And yes, people sinning against you and you sinning against other people, but working it by the power of the spirit, working it all out through his love and his grace and his forgiveness. If we don't have this, if we don't belong to Sarks, we do not have Jesus-shaped spirituality. Therefore, we do not have his power. We do not have his spirit. I end with this. The God of incarnation, according to one scholar, lives in a family, a trinity, a community of shared existence. To say that God is loving is to say that God is community. We're community. Let's be with Jesus. There's a, I'll end with this. There's this Ikea commercial that I watched with my children. Have you seen it? It's with the teddy bears that get bigger. And they're like bodyguards. They got muscles. They look like me, you know. And it's funny. There's one episode. The father is playing with his kids. And this Ikea stuffed animal is huge. It's like, like, what is going on? You don't even know what's going on in the commercial. Takes this father's phone. And his phone is calling from work and just crushes it. And the father then goes back playing with his kids, right? I think in a way we need to somehow, and this is the Holy Spirit needs to speak to you, we need to crush technology in our lives. Technology is good and we can use it in a right way, but I think maybe sometimes we need to fast it a little bit. We need to steward it better so we can keep the main thing, right? The main thing. So we can keep first things the first thing. And as we continue to do that, I promise to you the power of the Holy Spirit will be poured out in fresh ways. And when we stick to the body of Christ, even when there's just some people, you just, oh, right? You're just like, oh, I don't know if I want to go to that church anymore because of so-and-so or such and such. Or the redhead always talks about culture and weird words and stuff. Please stick with me, okay? Because I'm going to stick with you, all right? If we can maintain our relationship with the Sarks, and if we can just show up, man, I promise you, your longings will be fulfilled. Your desires will be summed up in Jesus. You will experience life and power in abundance. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Could you bow your heads? All right, Father, we make a decision as our eyes are closed, heads bowed, to put you first. Lord, I, I thank you that your presence is here. I thank you that we're in a move of God and you're going to do something special in our church, in our lives. So we just say yes to you, Holy Spirit. We open up our lives to seeking you, seeking first your kingdom. We thank you for your help. We thank you for your grace. There's no judgment here today. I know a lot of people are busy and tired and overwhelmed. And Holy Spirit, I just ask you would just come and lift off any depression, any sense of being overwhelmed, but you would come by your grace and your love and you would bring healing to your sons and daughters in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you that we would make a renewed commitment to being, being a part of your church, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week, that we will learn to give our lives away for your kingdom in Jesus' name. And everyone said, I'm gonna pray for one group. I just wanna say this really quick. I Last week, I was praying over our church and I feel like I need to pray this today if it's okay with you. You don't have a choice, so I'm gonna do it anyways. I feel like we need to pray for our young people. This message is actually, I curated it in such a way for our young people. So if you're 45 and younger, 
right? I'm kidding, 40 and younger. Um, I'm gonna pray for you today. I don't know if you know this, but Pastor Ken and Connie are founding uh, pastors. They were transformed by the Holy Spirit in the Jesus People Movement. I don't know if you know that my, my father traveled to Brooklyn when he was 21, he was on a missions trip. Uh, he then went to, uh, I think it was New Jersey, and somebody was taking him to this cul-de-sac. At the end of the cul-de-sac, there was this big white church. He steps in to this church. There was some dude uh, with a pulpit and a guitar. He was preaching and he was singing and there were like 500, pe- 500 young people just worshiping and praising God. He had never seen anything like that before. He had never experienced the presence of God, never experienced the power of God. That was so baked into his, in his um, heart and mind that he made a decision that when he was going to start a church and plant a church, that he would always emphasize young people. My mom was the same way. She was 19 years old and she went to Maui and she, it's, a, it's a good place to get saved. She got saved in Maui. She came back to Boise State and experienced this incredible move of God. Most of the football team got saved. I think they won the national um, championship that year. I think those two are correlated. Can I get any man? I don't know, I'm kidding. But it was a tremendous move of God and it shaped my mom's perspective on ministry. So since then, and since we've started the church, we have always emphasized young people. And I just believe that God's gonna do something powerful in the youth today in ways we've never seen. I really believe that, I have faith for that. Now, Chris, 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 what about us old people like, like me? Like if I'm over 40, we're gonna get to you next week, okay? We need fathers and mothers. Can I get an amen? We need mentors. We need people that are praying for our young people. But our young people, I don't know. I just feel it. They're going to be passionate. They're going to be courageous. They're going to do things and see things that they have never seen before, that we've never seen before. And we're going to get behind them in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're under 40, I want you to stand. I'm going to pray for you right now. I'm sorry I went too long. Is this okay? All right. If you're standing... If you're over 40, sit down right now. I'm kidding. Take your hand if you're standing, put it on your heart. Father, I thank you for your presence today. I thank you that you will pour out your spirit on every son and daughter. Father, I, I don't know. I just thank you. There's a new devotion that's coming to every heart and mind. I thank you that you're shifting our hearts. You're turning our hearts to you. I just, I don't know, I see a new discipline. I see a new grace. I see a new strength to commit ourselves to showing up and to being with you. Father, I thank you that you're gonna pour out your spirit in a fresh way, that we're gonna walk our young people, our entire church, but our young people specifically are gonna walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you. You've not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Lord, I thank you that you would, you would take our imagination, which has been hijacked by this world, where we've taken our desire and longing and we've placed it in money and success and other things, ourself. Lord, I thank you that you would take that back and you would restore to us a right spirit. Lord, you would create a Genesis week out of the chaos of our life and you would take our longings and our desires and you would fill it with grace and you would help, it, help us direct it towards you in Jesus' name. And Father, I thank you for a great move of God. I thank you there are evangelists in this room that are gonna be unafraid to declare the good purposes of Jesus to their generation. I thank you for a new courage to come on this generation. Lord, again, as I said it before, you've not given us a spirit of fear, but you perfected us in your love. And I thank you that perfect love cast out all fear. 
So I just thank you, Father, for your grace. Grace, 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 grace. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.